Ephesians 6, verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It was six years ago when a new Guinness Book of World Records was set, a new record for the longest speech ever given. It will come as a surprise to absolutely none of you that it was a sermon. <laughs> Pastor Zach Zender of Mount Dora, Florida, preached for two days, five hours and 18 minutes straight. To qualify for the Guinness Book of World Records, he was only allowed brief bathroom breaks and he must have at least 10 people continuously throughout the preaching. <laughs> he chose for his text the entire Bible. <laughs> and he preached from Genesis to Revelation. He crossed the threshold to set the world record at the two hour and 18, or two day and 18 minute mark, at which point several people in this congregation told him, you know, you've, you've set the record now. To which he said, I know, but I need five more hours to finish the sermon. <laughs> so I feel that way coming to the end of the study of the book of Ephesians. Don't worry, though. I'm not going to make a run for my own record this morning. But we have studied this book for well over two years now. And it is, I hope, been an encouragement to your own heart. We finish it this morning with our last text in the book of Ephesians, the last two verses of chapter 1. And I hope it encourages your heart as well. I want to give you an outline this morning to guide our Thoughts to this three resurrection gifts in these last few verses. This is the benediction from the text. This is the, where Paul signs off. And he closes the letter up. And in these three verses are three gifts that he gives you. Three you know, gifts he provides to you. If you do Easter eggs, picture these as wrapped up inside of Easter eggs. These are three Easter morning gifts you can pop open and receive for yourself. And you might be wondering, how can words written on the pages of scripture. So how do words in this book become my gift? So how did these words become mine? How do I receive them in any meaningful or significant way? And the answer is the three things that are offered here at the end of the book of Ephesians can be yours through faith. So that's the way the Bible works. The Bible conveys information to you. And in this few verses here, it's more than information. It's actual substance the Bible offers you. And when you receive those things by faith, they become yours. They're applied to your life by the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to make sure you understand that. So as we look at the three gifts, and I'll, I'll cheat real quick and rattle them off for you. It's peace, it's love, and it's grace. Peace, love, and grace. And so as the Bible communicates peace and communicates love and communicates grace to you, those three things are are yours in a real, true, and meaningful, and actual way if you receive them with faith, the Holy Spirit applies them to your life, and you actually experience them. So that's the exchange that happens. You bring your faith, and in exchange for your faith, God applies these things to you. So as we look at these things, the peace and love and grace, they become actually yours through faith. Real peace, real love, real grace become really yours if you have your faith placed in the truthfulness of what the word of God says. There are three resurrection gifts for you. The first of those is peace. 
with God the Father. Peace with God the Father. Now, peace is all about reconciliation. You see it in verse 23. Peace be to the brothers. This at the end of the verse is from God the Father. The word peace in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Ephesians, means reconciliation between God and man. That's what the word peace means, reconciliation. There's hostility between God and man, and God makes peace. So God ends the hostility by producing peace between God and man. So peace, in that sense, is the fruit of faith. You experience peace with God as a byproduct or a result or a fruit of the faith that you have in what the Word of God says. So you've made it through the book of Ephesians, all six chapters of it. You've gone through it. You've read it. You've believed it. The result of that should be a peace between you and God. This is why peace is so critical, because sin separates you from God. So sin is enmity with God. Sin is hostility towards God. Sin is division. And you see that division towards family members. Sin causes conflict in the home, in parenting, in causes conflict in marriage. Sin causes conflict at work. Sin causes conflict in nations. But more significant than all of that is that sin causes conflicts between a person and God, because sin is a deviation from God, a abandonment of what God's word says, a rebellion against God, uh, setting off your own way apart from God. What, however you describe sin, at the very fundamental level, sin is leaving God. It's rejecting him. And so that creates a distance. That's what sin is. It's walking away from God. So it creates a distance between the sinner and God. God is holy. Sin is foreign to him. And so the person who embraces sin, sinful thinking, sinful affections, sinful actions, is creating a separation between themselves and God. Sometimes that separation is just in their attitude. They're like, I don't want to think about God. I don't want to pray about God. Or I don't want to pray to him. I want to do my own thing. Sometimes that separation is more, you know, intense. Uh, sometimes sin is so strong in your life, you don't even want to pray to the Lord. You feel like sin is, is holding you back because you're harboring sin. You can't even send your prayers to God. So that's, the, that's what I mean by separation, that you feel like you can't even communicate with God because your sin is holding you away from him. So that's the animosity between people and God. It comes through sin. Sin makes you angry at God. It mutes your prayers. And sometimes uh, it's very obvious with an atheist who says, I don't even believe in God. Uh, that's, that's obviously, you can't get a more separation from God than that. Like, I don't even believe in him. That's pretty separate. And sometimes you encounter people that just say, I just, not that I don't believe in God. It's just that I don't, I don't know about God. Like, I haven't decided yet. Like, maybe he exists. Maybe he doesn't. How can anyone ever really know? I don't hate God. I just don't know what I think about him yet. It's not a hatred. It's not like an animosity. It's just kind of a shrugging. And so let me give you a human analogy to show you why that really is um, animosity. So imagine children. We have no Sunday school classes today, so all the kids are in the worship center, which I love. And imagine children who might tell their parents, like, hey, mom, dad, here's the thing. I know you tell me what to do. I know you tell me what to eat. I know you tell me when to go to sleep. I know you tell me these things. But, I mean, honestly, I'm just not at a place in my life right now <laughs> where... I'm ready to recognize your authority. In fact, I'm not even quite sure if you exist. It's not that I hate you. I don't hate you. I'm actually thankful for you bringing me into this world and 
giving me everything that I have in this world, like, thanks. But I'm just not quite ready to acknowledge that or say, like, yeah, you're real. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work. Like, that is, there's probably no more hurtful thing you could do to your parents than just say, I'm not going to recognize your existence anymore. And then how weird would it be for a person to say that and then turn around and be like, it's not that I don't love them or it's not that I hate them. It's just that I don't want anything to do with them. And yet that's how people's attitudes are so quickly to God. And I don't hate God. I just not personally at a place in my own life where I'm ready to recognize his authority. And do you understand that the things God commands you are more loving than the things your parents command you? God's care for you is more loving than how your parents care for you. It's more perfect. And so that makes the whole apathy act towards God even more extreme, even more preposterous. That God shows you, he brings you into this world, makes you in his image, shows you his love and his gifts for a person to shrug their shoulders and say, eh, I'm not just ready for that. Sin is hostility towards God. And yet, God makes peace with sinners. This has been a theme of the book. We're going to, th three times this morning, we're going to prance to the book of Ephesians. So you can flip back to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Just turn left. It's three or four pages in my Bible. Chapter 1, verse 2. The book begins with a promise of grace to you and peace from God our Father. So the book, this is more than just a generic salutation. It's not like, hey guys, comma, as you write an email. This is an actual sincere salutation. Peace to you from God. That's how the book begins. So there's hostility with God, enmity with God, separation with God, and yet God initiates making peace with the sinner. God comes to sinners. Note the divine source of this peace in chapter one, verse two. It's from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this dual source. It's a fountain of peace that comes down to us. This fountain comes to us from the Father, of course, in chapter one, verse two, and at the end of chapter six. But look over at chapter two, verse 14. To the middle of chapter 2, this is a key verse in chapter 2. It kind of, the chapter 2 hinges on this verse uh, that God saves you at the beginning of chapter 2. He's going to use you at the end of chapter 2. In the middle of this, chapter 2, verse 14, he himself is our peace. Chapter 2, verse 13, you were far off. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ because he is our peace. So that's how this works. There's separation between God and man. The Father wants to make peace with sinners and so he makes peace by sending Jesus, who is our peace, who tears down the wall of hostility. There's a wall built between sinners and God, or in the context of chapter 2, between Jew and Gentile, racial hostility. But it's still the image of separation, be it racial separation, be it religious separation. I don't recognize God, or I'm on animosity with those people. Jesus takes the place of that wall by bearing that hostility in his own body. So your anger at God or your vitriol towards God, your animosity towards him, your, your gunshots at him, your attacks and antagonism towards God, Jesus takes those in his body. And so he takes the place of the wall. Your antagonism towards God is the wall of separation. Your sin is the wall of separation. Jesus takes your sin becoming the wall by tearing it down in his own body. That's what it means when the Bible says he is our peace. 
He bears your sin in his own body, so he erases the division by tearing down the wall. Chapter 2, verse 14, he is our peace himself. Because of that, chapter 2, verse 17, he can preach peace to those who are far off, verse 17 says, and to those who are near. In Ephesians 2, that's Jews and Gentiles. Those who are far off are the Gentiles. Those who are near are the Jews. The Jews need peace with God that can only come through Christ. The Gentiles need peace with God who can only come through Christ. The Jews are clinging to the shadows of the Old Testament. They're hostile towards God because they won't see the reality of Christ. The Gentiles are worshiping Zeus and, you know, Diana and all the Greek goddesses, Artemis the Great. They're worshiping the, these pagan gods and goddesses. They also need grace. They also need peace. They also need forgiveness of their sins. So it doesn't matter if you're a barbarian or a Benjamite. You need peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is our peace. And you can flip back to chapter 6. You'll recognize like chapter 6, verse 15. I'm skipping a bunch, but chapter 6, verse 15, you get the shoes of the gospel on your feet. Those shoes are the readiness of the gospel of peace. So you're bringing the gospel into the world. It's the gospel of peace. So you see the flow here. From God the Father, he wants to make peace with you. He makes peace with you through Jesus Christ. When you receive Christ, you are now reconciled to God through Christ, and you now have the gospel of peace that you can bring into the world. That's peace. It's peace that comes to believers. God is the fountain of this peace. The fountain flows to people in verse 23, uh, who are brothers. It flows to people who have a relationship with God through faith in Christ. So if you want to experience that peace that comes from God, you come to God through the second gift, love towards the Son. So you have peace to the brothers, and that peace is from God the Father, and you have love toward Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ becomes the object of your love. That's what I mean by toward. Uh, when you love something, your love is toward that person. He's the object of your love. So to be reconciled with God, to have peace with God, you direct your love towards Christ. Love just speaks of the freeness with which God makes peace with us. And I want to say that sentence again because it's, it's a really cool sentence and I want you to hear it. <laughs> love speaks of the freeness with which God makes peace with you. So God loves you and so he freely makes peace with you. He doesn't reluctantly make peace with you. And let me give you a contrast analogy here. Uh, earlier, Pastor Steve talked about uh, praying for peace with the war between Russia and Ukraine. There very, may very well be a ceasefire at some point. They may very well achieve peace because, you know, Ukraine is tired of being bombed. They don't want to be bombed into oblivion. And Russia is tired of having their soldiers killed. You know, that seems to be where where the war is right now, right? And Russia's not going to run out of soldiers. They have like a billion people. They're not going to run out of soldiers. And, and, you know, Ukraine is always going to be there. But at some point, the Ukrainians might say, we're tired of being bombed. And the Russians might say, we're tired of having people die. And so there's some kind of peace. That is a very reluctant peace, right? That's not like a joyful peace. That's like a, we're kind of both sick of this. So let's go our separate ways again kind of peace. So that is not at all like the peace that we have with God. The peace that we have with God is not reluctant. It's based on love. It's that God loves us so much that he wants to make peace with us. So think of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son runs away, spends all he has, wishes his parents dead, squanders all of his money, comes back a broken and, you know, battered dude and doesn't think his dad will ever love him again and comes back very reluctantly 
He's, he's even got his speech memorized, like, I'll just beg that I'll be a slave, you know? And the dad, if you remember, runs out to meet him and grabs him and hugs him and puts the best robe on him and no slave for this guy. He's gonna have the best robe on him. There's an exuberance with the father's peace. And that's because the father loves him. So this is how the peace from God the father works. It's driven by love. It's not a reluctant peace. So God's not up in heaven thinking like, man, these sinners are so annoying. <laughs> like they're wearing me down and I can't deal with this forever. So I guess I'll make peace with them. Rather, God sees sinners rebelling against him and he purposes to make peace with them because of the love he has for them. So it's love that is motivating God to act. That love is from the father to the son. The father loves the son, his own son, more than anyone else. The son is the image of God. The father loves the son so much he's gonna have the son be the mediator, the son be the peace. That's how much the father loves the son is the son will be the peace. And the father loves us too much to let us go our own way. So he sends the son to get us. So this is all about love from the father to the son that then comes to us. The father through his beloved son loves us. There's nothing more certain in the universe than the father's love for the son. And so in light of that, there's no more sure way the father could show his love for us than sending his son for us. Do you follow that? The most confident reality in the universe is that the father loves the son. And so this is how God vouches for his love for us by sending his own son to redeem us. And you see this again. Let's go through Ephesians again. Chapter one, verse four. Hey, this is the last chance to do this. So let's enjoy it. Chapter one, verse four. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is talking about election, predestination. God chooses whom he will save. He predestined us, chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. So the motivating act of God in this is love. Into verse five, in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So it's love for Christ and it's love for us. God loves his son and he loves his elect. And so he will save them. And I've heard people say, oh, election, predestination, that's an unloving doctrine. If God was loving, he would, there would be no predestination or election to which I respond with, okay, but the Bible calls it God's love. So, so there, I mean, the Bible says, in love, he predestines us. And if you think about it even more critically, you understand why God loves us too much to let us go our own way. He definitely loves us too much to just say, to roll the dice and say, let's see who gets saved and see what happens. Maybe nobody, maybe everybody, we'll see. You know, God loves us way too much for that. He loves us way too much to make us sovereign because we would botch that. He loves us so much that he insists on being sovereign and he insists on being sovereign by showing his love to us through Jesus Christ who will save us who will actually save us. That's the love of God. You see it all over chapter one. You see it in chapter two. Look at chapter two, verse four. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse five says he saved us. So God loves us so much, he sends Christ to save us. God loves us so much, he actually saves us. Our chapter three. Verse 19, what this is the hinge of the whole book. Remember the first three chapters, very theological. The last three chapters, very practical. The hinge they swing on here is verse 19, that I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, chapter three, verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You're not gonna find a more profound verse in the whole Bible. You're not gonna find a more profound sentence in all of literature, or it's impossible to write something more profound than Ephesians three, verse 19. 
that you would experience the love of God that surpasses understanding. That's God's plan for your life. The result of that, I mean, time would fail us if we went through chapter 5, but chapter 5, verse 2, you're supposed to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's love all over chapter 5 in the relationships that we have. So you can flip back to the end of Ephesians 6. In light of that, it's love from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So follow me here. God is the fountain. He is dispensing. The Father is dispensing. That's what the fountain does. The Father is overflowing. The Father is dispensing peace. You drink from the water. You experience peace with God. The result of you drinking is you return. Remember what a fountain does is it overflows, and then the water returns. It recycles. So you experience peace with God by returning love towards the Son. So God makes peace with himself in you. The result of that peace is that the love goes towards Jesus Christ. So it's a cycle here. God makes peace. You respond by showing love to the Son. This is very Trinitarian. Father gives you peace through Jesus Christ. You respond by giving love towards Jesus Christ. It's a cycle. Peace with God only comes through love towards Jesus Christ. And the third gift we get is grace from God the Spirit. This is verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with the love that is incorruptible. So grace, I defined uh, the earlier two words, peace and love. Grace, let me define it this way, is getting something you don't deserve. That's grace. When you get something you don't deserve, grace. Okay? So what are you getting in verse 24 that you don't deserve? And the answer is love. And the other answer is peace. So this is a cycle here. This is a, a triangle. Peace goes to love. Love goes to grace. Grace cycles back to peace and love both. You get the gift of love and, and peace. And I say that it's, a, it's grace because the Bible calls it grace. Grace speed all. This is not just, again, some like normal generic benediction. Actually, grace will come to you. You receive the grace of God delivered by the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians. The Spirit is the person of God who applies grace to your life. You experience that grace when the Spirit seals you with his own love. Grace means you don't deserve it. So you don't purchase access to peace with God. You don't redeem yourself. You get this as something you don't deserve. So one more time, flip back to Ephesians 1. This is fun, isn't it? Ephesians 1, verse 2, grace to you. Notice that phrase. At the very beginning of the book, grace to you. And he's going to end it with the same phrase, grace. So this book is, it's sandwiched with grace. There's actual grace. And grace means you don't deserve what's coming. And what's coming that you don't deserve is everything in the book of Ephesians. You don't deserve this. God's giving it to you as a gift. Chapter 1, verse 6. This is going to happen. You're predestined according to his love in verse 5, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. So you're receiving this through grace. Or verse 7, this is according to the riches of his grace. So all of this predestination, election, peace, love, it's according to his grace. In other words, you don't sign up for it. You don't deserve it. You don't purchase it. You have access to this by grace. It is a gift to you personally. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Even when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is a, a gift here. Grace is the means 
by which you receive it. So you are made alive by grace. Look at it again in chapter 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you were saved through faith. Uh, you know, if you order something from Amazon, there's like a couple different ways it could be delivered to your house. Uh, one might be the postal service might deliver it, stuff in your mailbox. One might be the uh, FedEx guy who might deliver it. He'll throw it from the driveway, top of the driveway. <laughs> one might be the EPS guy who like puts it all gently on your door and rings the doorbell and goes away. So there's different ways the package can arrive. And you don't get to choose which of those ways. Like it just happens mysteriously. So this is kind of salvation here is the gift. And the means by which the gift is delivered here is, you know, is UPS or FedEx or whatever. The means by which the gift is delivered is it comes to you through grace. That's how the gift of salvation arrives to you is by grace. You don't pay for it yourself. It was purchased earlier. It's delivered to you by grace. That's the point of chapter 2, verse 8. By grace you have been saved, not your own doing. This is the gift of God. So you cannot buy your salvation. It's given to you, delivered by grace. Chapter 4, verse 7. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. I think we looked at this passage a year ago, last Easter, uh, that grace was given to us by the gifts of Jesus Christ. And he gives us spiritual gifts. All the gifts we have to serve the church are grace gifts. It's even redundant. In Greek, the word for grace and gift, same word. So you're getting these things, these grace gifts, so you can serve the church. In chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, only such is good for building up, so that you can give grace to those who hear. So this is the fountain of grace. Grace comes from the Father through the Son who purchases it, delivered to you by the Holy Spirit, and you now return it by expanding that grace and magnifying that grace to other people. So you drink from the fountain so you can display grace to other people. That's the full cycle of grace. It's a river of grace. So follow it through. God the Father is the fountain. From him is coming peace and love and grace. That comes to us through Jesus Christ who purchases it. And here's where the Amazon analogy breaks down. Like you buy it on Amazon, right? You paid for it. But with salvation, Jesus pays for it before you're even born. So you don't know anything about it. Jesus secures it, pays for it. The price set by the Father, purchased by Jesus Christ. So that peace and love and grace from the Father through the Son now is applied to your heart by means of the Holy Spirit who causes you to believe and delivers you faith so that you can believe by grace. That's how salvation works. And you receive it and you return it back to the Father again by worshiping Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. You worship Christ spiritually for his death and resurrection in the empty grave, and the Father receives all the glory. So Father, Son, Spirit, you receive it by faith, and it goes back upstream. The Holy Spirit helps you worship Jesus, who directs all glory and praise to the Father. It's a full cycle of salvation. That's what the whole book of Ephesians is about. I mean, I hope you see the fingerprints of this all over the whole book. Everything is about being made right with God through the love of God by grace. You can't earn it. It's also effective grace. It actually causes you to worship. It's Easter grace. You are dead in your sins and trespasses, and this grace makes you alive spiritually. It's grace that you have salvation not because you rose from the dead, right? You have salvation because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why it's grace. You didn't resurrect to get this. Jesus resurrected to get this on your behalf. You can't purchase it, earn it, deserve it. 
There's a chord running through this whole, this whole book of, of grace. The chord, grace is anchored in eternity past in heaven, goes through the cross of Jesus Christ, and now to your own heart, the Holy Spirit ties that cord around your heart. So you're now tethered to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit, and you're tethered by grace. And so in time, right now, this present tense, right now, 10.01 a.m., if you're a believer in Christ, the cord of grace is wrapped around your heart. And that cord goes from you back in time. It time travels. It goes back in time to the cross of Christ, where Jesus dies to purchase this grace. And from the cross, it goes up to heaven, where it is anchored, tethered to a pole in the ground, in the throne room of God himself by the Father. That cord runs from heaven to the cross, to your soul, and then back again, and it is secure. It will not fray. The Father won't drop you. The Holy Spirit won't forget about you. You're tied to him. That's this grace. But this is limited grace as well. Look at verse 24. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul normally ends his letters, and perhaps some of you have already flipped and looked at this. Uh, he ends many of his letters with grace to you, like he started chapter one, verse two, grace to you. But notice he ends Ephesians differently. He doesn't end it with grace to you. He limits it because he doesn't know who's reading this. He says grace to not everyone who reads this book, grace to a subset. Grace to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's limited now. And if you want grace, you have to have access to it through the death of Christ. So here's another analogy for you. I think it's like the free samples at Costco. Work with me here. Okay, so you can't buy those free samples at Costco from the free sample person, right? They, they lay them out, you know, a little applesauce in the cup. You're like, hmm, that's good applesauce. Can I buy one? You, well, maybe, but you got to go up there. You can't give that person money for it. I don't think, I haven't tried, but I'm pretty sure you can't give that person money for it. But not anybody can walk off the street and experience the free samples. You have to be a member of Costco to get the free samples. This is how God's grace is. You can't pay for it. You can't buy it. It's already purchased. But only those who have membership have access to it. Only those who are allowed in the door have access to it. Now, of course, the analogy breaks down because you pay for your Costco membership and you don't pay for your salvation. Jesus pre-purchased it. But the analogy works at the point of it's free samples for everybody in the building. This is how verse 24 is functioning. It's grace for everybody who has, notice what you have to have, love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how it's, the fountain is returning again. You want to experience grace, you have to go back up one notch on our list. To experience grace, you have to have love for Christ. And to have love for Christ, you have to have peace with God. But to have peace with God, you have to experience the love of Christ, which is delivered to you by grace, which reflects itself back up again in your love towards Christ, anchored in eternity past with God's plan for peace with him. The river flows from God through the eternity to us and then back to God again. Now, do you notice that all three of these words, peace, love, and grace, all three of them have limiting words on them. All three of these gifts are limited. It's obvious with grace. Grace with, not the world, but grace with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at love. Love with faith. So this love is only experienced by those with faith. And then peace. Peace to the brothers. 
Brothers here is a word the New Testament often uses to speak of other believers. It's not gender specific like it is in English. It's, it means brothers and sisters both. It's any believer is a brother to the Lord or a brother or sister to the Lord. So only peace is for only believers. Love only for those with faith. Grace only for those with the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're all limited. They're infinite gifts that are limited in their application. A few years ago, there was a, a, a rising star in kind of the liberal left-wing media named Anna Marie Cox. You might, name might sound familiar to you. She was on a lot of uh, left-wing talk shows and, you know, uh, she was the news editor for MTV News back when they had that. And she wrote it, you know, Mother Jones and she was an editor at the Daily Beast and those kind of uh, news outlets. She describes herself as, quote, a progressive feminist tattooed pro-choice woman in authority. Okay, progressive, feminist, tattooed, pro-choice, woman in authority. Well, a few years ago, she seemingly disappeared. Uh, she stopped writing. She stopped appearing on talk shows and TV shows. She just seemed to disappear. She had one post in social media where she talked about she was going through a dark time in her marriage and a time of self-doubt and depression and anxiety and kind of never heard from again. Well, uh, the Daily Beast, which is a, kind of a, a news blog that she used to work for, was able to track her down, you know, after she'd been radio silent for a couple of years. And she agreed to write a kind of final post on why she disappeared. And it's an incredible post to read. Uh, it is titled, Why I'm Coming Out, dot, 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 as a Christian. And she describes, and I don't, I don't, I mean, she wrote this publicly, so I don't think it's like a violation of confidence. It's like, you know, on the internet and such, <laughs> written by her. Uh, she describes a time in her career where she was going through a divorce and she had self-doubt and she kind of hated herself and she hated the world and she just wanted, she said she wanted peace more than anything else. And she had coworkers uh, that seemed to experience peace and have stability in life and so she started, she started asking them what was the story with their peace and how did they have that kind of stability and it rocked her world when she realized that all of those people were Christians. There was a cord running through all of them, a commonality that she was not prepared for. And so she went through a time of arguing with them and disputing with them because she couldn't understand how what the Bible says would line up with her politics, basically is, is how she describes it. But then she said the breakthrough came, and I want to read her own, own language because I, I love this sentence. She said the breakthrough came, quote, when I realized that I do not have to justify God. Instead, he justifies me through Christ. I am completely whole and loved by God without doing anything. And there is nothing so great I can do to make God love me more. That was the change. Like she realized, I don't need to defend what the Bible says about all these issues. I don't have to defend God. If the Bible is true, God can defend himself. <laughs> I need to submit myself to what the Bible says. And then I will experience peace. That's the limiting nature of peace. She wanted peace. She can't experience it apart from love towards Jesus Christ, faith towards Jesus Christ, grace toward all those who love Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, these words are limiting words. On the other hand, they're infinite words because of the last word of verse 24. Look at how the book of Ephesians ends. The last word, I love this. With love, incorruptible. Incorruptible. So when you experience that kind of love, you have an incorruptible nature to you. These, this internal transformation, internal peace, internal love, internal grace, 
transforms you and you experience life eternal and incorruptible. The Bible uses the word incorruptible a lot in the New Testament. Every place it uses it, it refers to the resurrection. It's often translated immortal or imperishable. When you experience incorruptible life, it's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and how you experience that. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, Jesus' resurrection reveals to us that immortality is contained in the gospel. That you can experience eternal life. My favorite use of, of this verse is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I hope it's big enough for you to read there. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. That's the same word. So you have a perishable body. It's decaying. You're getting old. You hurt right now. Your knee hurts right now, some of you. And you think, it didn't. Now that you mention it, it kind of does. <laughs> Your body's decaying right now. Some of you are having a hard time staying awake right now. That's your perishable body. Your soul doesn't sleep. Your soul doesn't age. It might mature. It might grow in some sense capacity. But it doesn't age. It doesn't get old and weak. No, your soul is imperishable. Your body is sown in dishonor. It's put into the grave in dishonor. But it is raised in glory. Your body will resurrect without the aging process. It's sown in weakness, raised in power. It's sown in natural body, raised to spiritual body. So notice the logic here. Your natural body goes in the grave and decays. Your spiritual soul in heaven. And the time is coming in the future where your spiritual soul will come back and fetch your natural body and the two will be joined, reunited, and your natural body will at that point be incorruptible. It'll be changed. It will not age or decay anymore. So Paul's banking on the reality that you have a soul as evidence that your body will eventually also be incorruptible. In fact, he says it in the middle of the screen up there. It's sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You got flesh, that means you got a soul. And I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So your perishable body will not inherit the immortal, eternal world. Your perishable body has to be made imperishable by being united to an incorruptible love of Christ through your soul. That's the point. And there's a lot of confusion on this point. Some people deny the reality of the soul and they focus on pursuing immortality for the physical body. You know, if you go to the gym every day, your whole life, an hour a day or two hours a day or whatever, your whole life, it's not gonna work. I mean, you're still gonna die, right? You'll be in shape. You might gain 20 years, I guess. And I'm just curious about the math, the two hours a day for 60 or 80 years. Is that, is that more than 20 hours of extra life or 20 years of extra life at the end? I don't know. Somebody could do the math for me later. You have a physical body, but you are a soul. You are a soul. And you know, the entire notion of imperishable speaks of an eternal life that you can experience. There's a British guy named Alan Sinclair. He's in his 80s right now. He does not want death to be permanent. I read a story about him recently uh, in the Daily Mail, a British newspaper. He said when he dies, his body is going to be stored at minus 320 degrees in a cryonic center in Michigan. He's going to die in London. He wants to die in London. 
but he's already paid them. The financial arrangements have all been made. When he dies, he's going to be put on dry ice, flown to Michigan, where it's freezing already, I guess. <laughs> and they're going to store him at negative 320 degrees Fahrenheit until a cure is developed for whatever killed him. And they're going to inject his body with that cure and then thaw him and voila, eternal life. Uh, the article says that a key component to this is that the freezing process can actually harm tissue. And so what they will do is they will drain, they'll flush the body of its blood and replace it. And I'm not making this up. They will replace it with antifreeze. <laughs> so the body will be drained of blood, antifreeze injected, stored at negative 320 until the cure for whatever killed him is discovered. And then he'll be thawed out, blood will be inserted and... By far and away, the best quote in the story, though, is from the head of this chronic center in Michigan. He says, the whole thing is really straightforward. <laughs> You're not even the good part yet. <laughs> the only possible problem is repairing the damage that's been done through the dying itself. <laughs> that's the only possible problem. Like, what if homie gets hit by a bus? Like, is there going to be a cure for that? <laughs> like, we discovered a cure from being run over. But so what? Like, his wife is, this already happened to his wife. I forgot that part of the story. His wife is already frozen in Michigan. So they'll be resurrected together. So <laughs> pretend it works. Then what? They're going to die again. I mean... Another million bucks? I mean, it is pointless. What a contrast with how the book of Ephesians ends. There'll be love incorruptible that you experience. You won't need a cure from the damage caused by the dying process because the main cause of death, which is sin, will have already been taken care of by Jesus Christ. And so if you have love for Christ, you experience forgiveness of sins, and you have life incorruptible. You have life incorruptible, that comes from exercising love and faith towards the Son, which is made possible by the grace the Holy Spirit gives. That's the message of the book of Ephesians. And that is the message of, of Easter Sunday morning, that you can place your faith in Jesus Christ. You can direct your love towards him. You can believe what the Bible says about him. You can subject yourself to it. And you, when you do that, will experience the grace of God, which is a gift to you. You'll experience the love for Jesus Christ, which is a gift for you. And ultimately, you will experience the forgiveness, the peace with God that comes through faith. Lord, we're thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here today that has never given you their life. I pray that today they would go from running to embracing. They would go from questioning to submitting to your word. They would humble themselves, believe the truth of the word. They wouldn't try to justify you, but rather they would be justified by you as they place their faith in you. Lord, we're thankful for this triune plan of salvation from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. We receive it by the Spirit and direct our love and worship back to the Son, ultimately knowing it's in heaven with the Father. And it gets all the praise and glory. We're thankful for this gospel message and we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us. 
If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to see you at Emmanuel Bible Church. For more information on our church or our current service times, go to ibc.church. For more information about the Master Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been a blessing to you, and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel with boldness.